Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Well, ElixirConf US 2023 has concluded, and that's awesome by itself, just because there's a lot of interesting things that were discussed, shared, and announcements. So there's a lot to cover, but a lot of it's not available at this moment either publicly to be like shared. So I'm sure this is stuff that we will be talking about more in the future. And we'd love to have some of these presenters and people on to talk more in depth about the things that they were sharing, libraries or uh, projects or, or things like that. So we will be going deeper into this over time. But we did want to cover some of the main things. And then because of the conference, the news is a little bit light in other ways. So we'll just see what we can cover here. First up, Chris McCord gave the opening keynote. And really, this was a jam-packed presentation. There was so much in this. It was like, oh my gosh. So one of the big things was he demoed improvements for Phoenix debugging tools, like the ability to view your server logs in the JavaScript console to really bring all of that into one place. And because lots of times, if there's any kind of failure, you're having to check your JavaScript console anyway. So like, why not make it so it's available there in debug dev mode, right? And then also having the ability for LiveView components to output special comments in the markup that give ability for you to click on something in your browser and jump to the code in your editor for that component. That's pretty slick. Yeah, I can see how that's going to be nice. Sometimes you you fill up your tree with all these components and you're like, where does this start and where does that end? That'll be cool. Yeah, another one was he talked about async assigns, where this is formalizing a lot of the stuff that was already there. You know, you could have the building blocks to do this yourself, but if you want to cover all these different use cases where an async task should stop running when someone leaves the live view and they go navigate somewhere else and all these different use cases, doing that correctly was a lot of kind of boilerplate code, honestly. So what async assigns does is adds this new feature into live view that just puts all of that boilerplate code behind some very easy to use stuff. So you can have like an assigns that says that this particular thing is loading. And once the data is loaded, then it pops in, you know, it looks really slick. I I haven't had a chance to play with this yet. Some of these things aren't, at least at the time there's recording, aren't fully released as the new version of LiveView. So we'll have to see more about those as they come out. Another one, he talked about myapp.scope. MyApp.scope, he didn't go into a lot of details, but it is a pattern that most Phoenix apps are probably doing already in a way. So they're just going to introduce that concept into generators to start you off a little bit cleaner. And so the idea is prop drilling. It's a problem for everybody. And prop drilling originated from React, I think. This whole functional design of having properties being drilled all the way down to where you need them. But it's also pretty tedious. And so React has solved it in a lot of different ways. We don't have to do a whole lot here in Phoenix, right? Our controllers usually have a con. That's kind of the beginning of our context, right? Our, you know, know all kind of struct. And so this new idea is generating myapp.scope to have that app specific kind of context be drilled down from the con all the way down to like your templates or something like that. Didn't get to see some examples. So we'll have a better idea once it's fully released, but that would also support live view as well. So in that case, I think it would be like the socket would be the, origin and myapp.scope would just be that struct that can help with that. Yes. And another one we talked about previously, but Chris McCord talked in greater depth was the new library DNS cluster, 
which makes it really easy to cluster Elixir nodes when you're running in an environment where DNS is an easy way to connect up, which happens to be how it works at fly.io, where you have a private DNS network that all of your nodes can cluster over, and DNS cluster makes it really easy to do that. So that library became officially part of the Phoenix framework for the GitHub organization. Another one was long pole fallback. And this one is interesting because Chris McCord, working at fly.io, has contributed to the admin and user interface aspect of it. And when you start talking about, okay, using something in anger and seeing how under some circumstances, like 2% of the users of this interface, this live view interface, were having failures because of some type of networking problem. It could have been anywhere along the chain, just WebSockets were dropping. And it's only like 2% of the users, but you know, 2% when you have a large number and it makes it unusable, that becomes a problem. And so we all benefit from Chris having experienced this and seeing, okay, we do have to solve this. And he added the ability to have a long pole fallback. So if for some reason there's networking stuff in the middle, whatever, the WebSockets are failing, that it will fall back to long polling and it will remember that long polling as you navigate from one page to the next page. So you don't have to like wait for it to fall back to it. It's just a better elegant fallback for those situations where the users don't have, for whatever reason, something like just in the world of the internet, routers somewhere are dropping something and making it so it's not working for a percentage of our users. So that's a neat little thing too. So I don't think it's much that we have to do to take advantage of it. You might just have to enable that it can happen. I don't know. I think that was surprising to some folks. It may have been an assumption that long polling fallback was already automatic in Phoenix Live View, but it's not. You do have to like configure for it. And the configuration for that is not terrible. You just have to know about it. And maybe that was the issue. But now the introduction here of this better automatic long polling fallback is all of what Mark said, but also one line of code of code change. It's just one line in when you're creating your live socket on the JavaScript side to enable that and set how long to detect and then fall back to long polling. So I'm all for easy config changes to get a better experience for all. And I also especially love benefiting from Chris's anger. <laughs> there was another keynote by the folks at Dockyard talking a lot about Live View Native, and it sounds like they are still working on it. They said 99% of their Swift UI components are there and nearly all of the styling modifiers are implemented. And it sounds like Android Windows are still both being worked on at this time. So just chugging along. Be nice when they when they get that going. Fly.io. It's a great place to run Elixir apps. With many global regions, a private network that makes it easy to cluster your app, and a powerful CLI, it's something you should really try out. Experience it for yourself at fly.io. All right, next up, uh, of course, in, in Jose Valim fashion, a really good Jose Valim keynote. <laughs> and this time he's closing. What did he talk about? He talked about types. And he set expectations. He's been doing this for a bit. He set expectations. He's dispelling myths. He goes over a lot of what he went over last year at Elixir Confi U. So a, lo a lot of that was just a good reminder. He explains how set theoretic types kind of work and how to reason about them. Maybe the bulk of his talk was kind of the journey of determining how the type system can work. And he goes over several options. First option he went over was, imagine you have your code base now, nothing's typed. So you start with dynamic types everywhere. Everything's assumed to be dynamic and dynamic would be the type. It's just not really knowable. And so you start typing your functions, but you still have untyped functions being called in places. And it implies 
essentially it boils down to that dynamic types are kind of still everywhere. <laughs> so how is that very helpful? All right. So that was option one. Didn't sound great. Option two, you ignore dynamic types, similar to how TypeScript works. But simply put, he said it's not sound because at compile time, it doesn't really match runtime. You end up with a bunch of runtime errors or type errors in runtime. It's not enjoyable. Option three, don't trust the developer and instead just check at runtime <laughs> and start to return all these type errors. So that feeling would be a lot like TypeScript, but now we're in runtime. But as you can probably imagine, that has huge, big, huge, 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 huge performance costs. And that's no bueno. So option one, two, three, no good. So what's the solution? So his solution was to introduce this concept of, he called it strong arrows. And the whole purpose of this is to tame the dynamic type. So he goes over set theoretic types and he lays that down, right? That type theory is going to be good. Problems really come in when you need to do gradual typing. And that's what these options are all about. And so strong arrows are going to help with this gradual type issue. And it's going to tame that dynamic type that just ends up everywhere. I won't go into the details because honestly, I didn't capture all of that. <laughs> I didn't grok all of that at the first pass. So I'll have to watch it again. But the idea was to negate the domain that you're type checking. And depending on that result means it's a strong arrow. Otherwise, it's still considered dynamic, right? It's to create another rule to help stop the spread of dynamic everywhere. That's the point of this. So the good part is, is that there are no additional runtime checks and that there is an opportunity for more type inference, such as using guards, like function guards. If you have multiple clauses of your function, one of them captures when it's a binary, the other one captures when it's a it's an integer. And if that's untyped, those guards can help infer the type rule for that and still being helpful, right? Maybe incomplete, but still be helpful. That whole topic is still being researched, so who knows if we'll get it. Rounding all that out, this is all still with a big caveat that there's a lot of research going on, there's a lot of implementation going on, we may not have static typings after all this is said and done. If we can't find a good sound performance kind of, you know, type system that works well with Elixir. But sounds encouraging so far. I'm still pretty excited for it. He did have some addressing concerns section, right? He collected thoughts and questions on X, formerly known as Twitter. Will it support the at spec syntax? And the answer is no. It's not as precise as it should be. So for example... You might spec your function to like return an OK tuple with something in it or an error tuple with something in it. Because you got that little pipe in there, it kind of implies or. That ends up being a really imprecise type. It's not very helpful when it comes to a proper type system. So no, it, it won't be supported. Will the type system be enforced? No, it won't be. You can type it whenever you want or not at all. That's fine. Will mismatch types happen at runtime and compile time? And he goes over that. No. Will it work with macros? Yes, it will. Will it work with IDEs? Sure. When Elixir LS and all those tools, you know, start to support it. And will it make it harder to learn Elixir? And he doesn't know. If you want the short version of everything I just said, it's that they're giving it their most careful, earnest, and no guarantees. So the roadmap for Elixir is to add those set theoretic types to the compiler and infer types from patterns and guards. They're going to introduce notation for typing structs. That'll be the first place we see it. And then they're going to introduce notation for typing functions. And on every one of those steps, if they come up with huge problems, that's the moment that they can back out. That was the summary of the talk. I didn't really capture the soul of it, I'm sure. So if you go check out the uh, YouTube video when it's published, you'll get a better idea of what all that stuff means. 
Yeah, and when those keynotes are available publicly, we will be sure to pass those along to you. So closing out for the conference, the next ElixirConf will be in the EU, in Lisbon, in April 18th and 19th of 2024. And ElixirConf US 2024 will be at SeaWorld August 27th through the 30th in 2024. Moving on from conference talk, our very own Mark has written us a blog post where he talks about how to customize Phoenix generators. Yeah, this was uh, an interview that we had recently in episode 167, where we talked with Victor Björklund. It was really cool. We were talking about Phoenix generators and how to customize those, like a mix Phoenix new, right? Like at that level. And then we also talked about the other generators that live in your project once it's been created. During this conversation, I realized, oh, I didn't know that you could so easily override those generators on your project after you have a working project going. And so I thought it was so cool. I just wrote it up into a blog post to document how to do this and why we might want to. So one of the examples is, and this is like one that David shared, was like the idea of if me and my team have settled on some patterns that we like to do, maybe with when we generate a context, we always add these extra functions or we name them this way, something like that. We can just put that in the generator so we can use the generators as we generate new stuff instead of what we tend to do. I think what I've tended to do is copy and paste from another example and then try to change it from there. But then you always end up with these leftover little bits that are are total giveaways from where you copied it from. And then what if they copied it from the wrong version of that, like an older, older version? You know, it's like, hey, if we can just define the patterns we want to use and still be able to use the generators going forward, I thought it was really cool. So anyway, wrote that up and shared that so you can check that out. Yeah, I think that's a cool tip. Like with the advent of the components in LiveView, I think the generators can get really far because you can actually just update that core components file and make it look how you want, but you can't ever get it that last 10%. So if, if there's just like some spacing issues and like some headers that you just always want to look the same, you can tweak this and say sayonara to those little tweaks that you always make every time you generate those CRUD UIs. Yeah, one of them that I do is I add required to a label component so that I can get the little asterisk to show on the form that it's required. It's like give a some type of visual representation of it being required. You know, like that was a customization I made and like I do that every time. So yes, it's nice if you can just have that in your generator. And last up, Alex Kutmos reminded us of a great resource in the Erlang.org docs. It's the efficiency guide. So this is a really interesting guide. I had not seen this before, so thanks for calling attention to this. The guide covers lists, maps, binaries, and even like dispels performance myths. And that's like dispelling myths on the positive and negative side, where people would say, oh, if you do tail recursion, it's faster. It's like, well, no, it's not actually faster. But then talking about how the compiler will optimize usage of lists and things like that. Like if you're not actually using a list and you don't assign it to something, it'll just optimize it out. Anyway, so there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. So just a heads up that the code samples are all in Erlang, but hopefully as Elixir devs, you know, the, the types all match directly over so we can easily enough understand the point of the code well enough to get the meaning because the same points that apply to the Erlang code, oftentimes they always directly apply to the Elixir created beam code as well. So anyway, thought that was a, a neat resource to pass along. Yeah, it's a really good guide. Like the very first thing that I looked at, I realized I have been doing wrong the whole time. Like a very practical example is that double plus operator. Mm -hmm. And they say, if you have a big list on the left, the left always gets copied onto the right. 
that's literally how I use it every time is I put like a really small list on the right and the full list on the left. That's the exact example that they say, don't do this. <laughs> that's the wrong way to use it. You can use this operator if you do it the opposite way. So very interesting stuff. That's it for the news. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.